1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey
0: everyone, today's guest is Dave Perner, lead vocalist and guitarist for the Minneapolis, Minnesota rock band, Soul Asylum. Together we take an inside look into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the hit single, Somebody to Shove, a lead off track from their 1992 album, Grave Dancers Union. We've heard this numerous times here on Krista Makes a Podcast, and it still amazes me each time. But Somebody to Shove was written in the 11th hour, after the writing sessions for the album were already completed. Dave brought the chord arrangement and an early basic lyric idea into the studio one day to show the band. And when producer Michael Beinhorn heard it, he immediately said, this has to go on the album. Not only did it go on the album, it was the first song on the record and the first single from the album released to radio. I asked Dave if he double-tracked his vocals on the song, and he honestly couldn't remember, chalking it up to something that Andy Wallace probably tweaked when he mixed the song. And this is the first song we've broken down to date that has pulled lyrical inspiration from a nursing home, a landline telephone, and a box of Cracker Jacks. Pretty strange and pretty cool. For all this and a whole lot more, stick around. Hey, hey, have you heard Hey Dave, how are you? Not too bad. How are you, Chris? I am fantastic. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate you sitting in with us today. And you know, as I, I was researching this episode, what a what a storied career uh, Soil Asylum has. Mm-hmm. You guys began in 1981 in Minneapolis. And uh, Minneapolis, of course, is, is home to, to some of my favorite bands. I'm, I'm sure yours as well. Whisker uh, Du, The Replacements, which you have history with both of those bands, as Bob Mould produced some of your early records. And uh, of course, Tommy Stinson uh, from Replacements played bass with you guys from 2005 to 2012. But, you know, I first became aware of you guys in 1988 when you released Hangtime. And Hangtime was your first for AM Records. And I kind of feel like, you guys were kind of the last crop of bands that were actually given what we was called then developmental deals where you were able to build a fan base, Uh. you know, but by the time my band got signed in 1995, you know, we got two records on Capitol. We didn't have a hit and we were kind of out of the door at that point. So uh, uh, talk a little bit about that because you made a couple records, the hang time in 88, uh, which had some amazing songs, Marionette, Uh, A Little Too Clean. And then you follow that up in 1990 with And the Horse They Rode In On. And by that time, you know, those records both sold modestly. Uh, By the time you were going to record Grave Dancers Union, uh, where did you sit with A&M? Were were you guys worried about getting dropped? Was this a make it or break it record for you guys? Was it a make it or
2: break it record? Uh, No.
0: <laughs> I guess I guess what I'm asking is did did you feel any pressure at that point? Did an AR guide or anybody tell you, hey, this record has to have a, a hit, which <laughs> how do you write a hit? No one no one knows, you know. It's just something that that usually just happens.
2: Oddly enough, it was something that never really happened until yeah, I don't know if it ever really happened. I think part of the reason why the band was interesting to AM is because We had already developed our own fan base by constant touring. I don't remember pressure. Anyways, by the time we got to AM, we we already pretty much had a a touring itinerary or whatever you call it. And uh, they were very hands-off. And I think that was part of the understanding is that we already did things the way we do things and we must be doing something right and they had no concept of what was going on in the quote unquote punk rock scene so i think uh that was part of what was attractive about the band is that we had already done all the legwork by the time um the twin tone a m thing and we also i don't even know how much uh, reality there was to it, but it was put out on Twin Tones slash A&M, which made me more comfortable. I, I think it made us all feel more comfortable. So it was kind of this thing where we still had our indie record label name attached to us and we were going out into the world to un- try to figure out what this major label deal was all about. They had no idea what to do with this.
0: Well, yeah, because because when and the horse they wrote it on came out in 1990, that's before the the word alternative it was just starting to get uttered then, you know, and of course, it was a year later that uh, I hate the term, but but grunge broke. So you guys were kind of in the middle there. So when this record was being being written, I mean, I guess the next thing I want to know is how did you get in contact with Michael Beinhorn, who produced the record? Because he was kind of an unknown at this point
2: what we usually did was uh we'd get a bunch of cassettes each producer would have like their reel, you know so i remember michael's cassette had it was the first time i'd gotten a i don't know if you call that a demo reel but uh his songs were edited so he had you know the chili peppers and a bunch of bands on there but it was only like the beginning and the middle of the end of each song which was a pretty good strategy because it, it just kind of it gave you a, a sort of overview of all the things he had worked on at that point and then the next step would be and i just liked the way that his stuff sounded compared to whoever else i was listening to or wh- whoever else w- was being considered and it just it just sounded better to me so next thing you do is you know i don't remember i probably inter- interviewed with a couple other a, f- a handful of other producers and his conversation with me was uh i guess you do you do the you do the listen to a bunch of uh reels and then you do the phone call and then if you're still leaning in that direction you do you know lunch or dinner but he came prepared, like he he knew all the names of the songs, and he had something to say about each one. Yeah, he made a really good case for uh, why we should work with him.
0: The reason I brought him up was because I, I was talking about the, that term alternative uh, before, and, and you know, Prior to you guys, he was working with, as you said, the Chili Peppers. He produced Fab Five Freddy, Violent Femmes. You know, Violent Femmes and Chili Peppers were considered alternative uh, back in the 80s. And I remember hearing Grave Dancers Union just being impressed so impressed by the, by the production. It sounded awesome. And one of my favorite bands is from Canada. They were on AM at the time called The Doughboys. I'm sure you, you know those guys. And, and I wished so bad. I was like, why can't these guys work with Michael Beinhorn? Because they put out what I considered Crush, a hit record. It just had really, really flat production on that. But the song we're going to talk about today, Somebody to Shove, was the first single that was released on May 5th uh, of 1992. And do you remember writing Somebody to Shove?
2: I do. I remember the waiting by the phone bit was the part that I had first. And that was kind of one of those things that was gnawing at me a little bit, you know, and we hung out in New York a lot. And a good friend had a pass, had a laminating machine. So there was this laminate that was uh, grandpa from the beatles movies you know there's a character named grandpa i don't even it's help or something i, I think is the, the right movie and uh some reason that triggered the grandfather thing it well yes he was known as grandfather and uh that's kind of where the first line came from grandfather and the grandfather clock and all that so i kind of slowly came together i suppose and i and i know that it was the very last song we recorded for the record it was a situation where you know we had sort of we had decided on all the songs that were gonna, gonna go on the record and then uh, sterling campbell came in and played on the record and when i heard sterling played drums i was kind of i was moved i was actually moved to tears on one song. I can't remember if anybody said, you got anything else, Dave, or if I went, I think I got something else because I got excited when Sterling started playing and I'm like, Oh, I want to hear how he plays this idea. That's been swimming around in my head, which was somebody to shove. So it was, it was kind of almost an afterthought. And, uh, I, I believe we played through it once and. Beinhardt and immediately liked it. I, I pretty distinctly remember him going, that's going on the record. And, uh, that was a good feeling, you know?
0: that's really cool to hear because I can't tell you how many times I've heard that on this show where it's the 11th hour and it's almost like the, the pressure's off you. You already got a record in the can, the record's ready to go, but Hey, let me just try this one idea out and then everyone jumps on it. And then of course it be- ends up becoming the first single yeah. uh, of the, of the record. So, so this was essentially written uh, for grave dancers. Union. this wasn't something you had held over from a previous record or something you had laying around.
2: Correct. Glad I thought to, record (laughs) it Yeah, I was like yeah maybe I don't know what do you think of this one
0: and And so do you recall at that point did you have most of the arrangement and chords done Uh, where where was the lyrics at did you kind of finish the lyrics when you were in the studio or did you come in with that uh, grandfather idea
2: oh that's a good question Um, I don't know I bet you there was probably a couple mumbles in there that uh, I hadn't quite figured out exactly what I was going to say, but I definitely had most of it figured out by that time. But uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not positive if I had every single word together the first time we recorded the song and uh, gosh, I bet we did two or three takes at the most once it became apparent that it was going to be a, a player on the record. I don't know if that's the right expression, be included on the record. I I, I don't remember struggling with, with the words, so they must have been somewhere really close or else I would remember a moment of panic in New York City where I'm like, oh, God, I got this song everybody's excited about and I, I can't figure the words out. So thankfully, that is not a memory because I've had situations like that, which are not great.
0: And I'm, I'm assuming there's no demo of this song. It was, it was so new that you just showed it in the studio, and that was it, right?
2: You are correct, yes.
0: Yeah, because sometimes we like to include the demos, or I'll, I'll scour YouTube for a demo, and I, and I looked, and I couldn't find one for this one.
2: This is the first time I've actually tried to remember this stuff.
0: Well, I'm, ask, I'm asking you to have a recall of 31 years at this point, so I, I appreciate you... <laughs> what <laughs> what you are are recalling and it's so funny when i get guests on here like man you know it, it, it's amazing what they what they do remember but uh i want to jump into the track dave the song is 3 minutes and 15 seconds uh the intro is this killer guitar lick for two bars almost sounds like a like a tube screamer like a little flange on there or something it's a killer tone and then the whole band kicks in for four measures bass drums and stereo guitars uh, as we enter verse number 1
3: Rang for so long. Every time flies by like a vulture in the sky. Suddenly he breaks song.
0: Grandfather watches the grandfather clock and the phone hasn't rang for so long. And the time flies by like a vulture in the sky. Suddenly he breaks into song. What's going on there?
2: I think I was sort of honing in on the the old man sitting in a nursing home or the old man being extremely lonely and uh he uh, is waiting for someone to call doesn't seem very specific a call from uh you know his kids or his kids kids or something or waiting for uh I don't know maybe a nurse to bring him his medication. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he just wants to talk to somebody. And uh I don't know, it seemed like a an interesting place to start the song. And uh I don't know, something some a premonition that I suppose at one point or another everyone's going to well, not everyone, but people get old and uh it was probably a, like a Simpsons episode. I remember when a, like a, a phone rings and all these old people come out of their rooms and then it's it's for one person and everybody goes back into their rooms and that's <laughs> their day.
0: Do you recall that uh, intro lick that uh, that, I, that I talked about? Did, was that something that uh, that you kind of had kicking around when you were writing it or something that was created in the studio? Because it's, it's just so catchy right off the top.
2: Uh, it was something that I had been kind of working on and i i think i was going god i really it really needs something to happen before the the band comes in and uh i don't know i think uh for some reason it evokes robert fripp to me it's, it's just got this, you know, it's got this thing going on that it, um a kind of a syncopated thing there's this record called the league of gentlemen and it uh it has these really cool Robert Fripp, sort of syncopated, circular bits that he's, that he's playing that are, um, I don't know, they're just cool. So I think I was just kind of messing around with that idea Part of the lick is something that developed out of a thing I was doing just for like finger coordination. I don't know if I learned it from a, I think I took one guitar lesson from this woman on the West Bank, which is at the University of Minnesota. And uh, she, she said, well, here's, the, here's a good warm up or whatever. She was a jazz player, I think. Oh, she's a blues player. And uh, it's kind of in there, but you know, I don't know. I sort of developed it out of pulling pieces of not knowing what I'm doing and putting them all together.
0: <laughs> I I definitely get that because I've been I've been warming up before and stumbled across something. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. So I, I I totally get that. And you, kind of the reason I, I I was setting the episode up uh, early on and talking about where you guys came from, it's just like. Listening back, I don't remember thinking this at the time, but listening back to this verse, you know, it just... It has that feel, that early 90s, but that wasn't something that you guys just all of a sudden tried to fit into. You were doing that back in the 80s. This was your sound from, from when I first discovered you in '88 on Hangtime. So it just it just happened to be that your time kind of arrived. You guys were given enough chances by AM where you could finally have a hit record. And I think that's so cool. In verse one here, the drums break down to just kick, kick drum toms, and snare. And do you recall if that's a hi-hat keeping time there? Or is that a shaker? going on in that verse. I couldn't tell.
2: That is a hi-hat to my record
0: The mix is great, but it's mixed just perfectly right where I couldn't actually tell. And uh, the stereo guitars here, are they're kind of chugging along to that drum pattern. And then we get into pre-chorus one. And I wrote here in my notes, Dave, that this pre-chorus... Is, is a chorus <laughs> it's so catchy it's like you get two choruses in this song
3: I'm waiting by the phone waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm
0: I'm waiting by the phone, waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone. I'm waiting by the phone, waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone. It's so
2: strange saying things that make you sound dated, but this was before everyone had phones on them. Yeah. So I guess if I think about it, it's like you don't have to wait by a phone anymore because your phone's always on you. So
0: (laughs) that's, that's, that's so funny that you say that because I, to this day, like right now in present time, 2022, I don't take that lyric. I, I still wait by the phone sometimes, my cell phone, when someone's going to call me. So I, I, I never would have thought about what you just said. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I remember precisely where the phone was in the apartment that I would wait by. And, uh, phones were a, a different kind of animal to me anyways, um well yeah it wasn't always on you so if you're on the road or you're if you're touring in germany or something there's you gotta get to a phone <laughs> um yeah it it was just a different kind of thing it, it wasn't always available and uh yeah you'd have to go sit somewhere and wait for a phone to ring
0: sure sure did you ever have djs or or fans come up or the casual fans say hey you're gonna play the waiting by the phone song because again this (laughs) sounds like a chorus you know later on you get the somebody to shove refrain but this uh this in and of itself pre-chorus is just so catchy
2: yeah well like i was saying that was the part that came first so in a way i was building out from around that part yeah it, it's it is kind of interesting that I was like, well, it needs one more part, but I think if you listen to the records before that record the the A&M records, i guess there's lots of parts
3: mm-hmm.
2: all the songs part 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 so uh it wasn't unusual for me to just keep adding parts to songs <laughs> theoretically someone will go that's enough parts
0: yeah well th- this arrangement on this song is 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 really cool and and here uh, on the pre-chorus one it it's essentially a double pre-chorus here uh the drums break away from that tom kick and snare beat that they're doing in the verse uh they come in with a straight beat and they're joined by strumming stereo guitars bass and it sounds like an overdubbed uh arpeggio on the higher strings there was was that an overdub or was that done on one of the stereos I couldn't really tell
2: I don't Recall, I mean, if there's a, so you're just saying it sounds like there's a there's a guitar an octave up doing the same thing.
0: Well, no, it's kind of like a a, a, little, a little a little little jangly thing there in the pre-chorus.
2: Twelve string in there or something? I don't know. Sing by the phone.
0: Yeah, it's cool, and, it, and it's hard to tell if it's it's one of the stereos kind of doing it while, while, while they're playing or if it's an overdub, but I, I love that part. And the other thing I wanted to ask you here, do you recall double-tracking your vocals? I don't
2: recall doubling things. Like, if you listen to the Twin Tone stuff, sometimes Bob Mould had a thing where he'd just go, put another one on there, put another one, on and you'd mm-hmm. end up with this, you know this kind of wall of guitars and there's at least one song I made to be broken where I took it kind of too far. And it's just got it's got a double vocal. So the song called Ain't That Tough, it's got a it's got a double vocal, but it doesn't match up. And I thought that was really cool. And that- And I think the reason I thought that was cool is because Lou Reed does it on Street
3: Hassle. So I didn't
2: think there was anything weird about it, but now I would listen to it and go, that's what was i thinking you know
0: who mixed the song who mixed grave dancers union
2: uh andy wallace
0: so andy mixed it okay yeah. so i wonder if there was a chance that andy had you know maybe had a couple of different takes and he was mixing in because i swear it sounds doubled in the verses and the pre-chorus here
2: yeah, i'm sure it is i mean yeah
0: yeah and that that's something the mixers would do you know
2: yeah i mean sometimes i'd double something and not even realize i was Double <laughs> yeah, that thing.
0: that uh, that that's he, what I'm saying. I I've, I've had that happen was, before.
2: Michael was very articulate about following through, which was not something that every producer does. But he would come to uh, the studio when Andy was mixing, and he had notes on everything, so he could have been going put a double in there or something. But I do recall at one point Andy Wallace turned and looked at Michael Beinhorn and went look man <laughs> you've got all these notes on every single song and if we're gonna get through this you know we gotta we gotta be less detailed or you gotta back off a little bit or i've never yeah. finished with this which was sort of touching to me i was like right on michael really cares you know
1: Don't run away because we got lots more with Dave Perner after a few words from our sponsors. Looking to
0: elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits, to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, View streaming stats and withdraw earnings all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com VIP slash Demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Demakes. Hey,
1: everybody. It's Chris Demakes, the podcast producer. Chris Fafalius here once again, to share a little clip from an episode of The After Party, The After Party is our weekly podcast that we release to members of our supporting cast. If you're interested in joining our supporting cast, just head over to Christomakes.com. for a few bucks a month. You'll get a bonus episode each week, a giant back catalog of episodes of The After Party, and you allow us to continue making to Makes a podcast. This clip is from our episode titled Iconic Synth Riffs of the 80s that we released back in January. Here we are talking about Joy Division's Love Will Tear Us Apart crazy because it's it's catchy and upbeat, but at the same time, it sounds really somber.
0: Yeah, it's got that those goth qualities, you know? And it does. As you, as you said, the track came out in 1980. Ian Curtis was only 23 years old. The remaining members of the band went on to form New Order, which, you know, you got me thinking of another song, which was Blue Monday, released in 1983 from New Order, has another keyboard riff that's just uh, amazing in that tune that wouldn't be the same song, but but uh, yeah, Joy Division, you, you kind of wonder where, where they would have uh went without
1: uh ian suicide right right and i thought one more thing was interesting about this song chris was that i guess ian curtis a lot of times did play the synth in the band i, I or maybe just on the recordings or whatever he didn't play guitar that's my point here so another founding member of joy division bernard sumner he switched from guitar and played the synth when they played this live and ian curtis would play guitar but only because someone showed him how to play a d major chord and that's just the only thing he played throughout the entire song thought that was pretty interesting
0: (laughs) yeah um i've never heard that. so that's pretty uh, pretty
1: to hear the rest of our iconic synth riffs of the 80s episode as well as a ton of other episodes plus a new episode each week Head over to ChrisDemakes.com and join our supporting cast. Your support allows us to continue making this show. So thanks, everybody. Now, back to the show.
0: Well, and you were talking about the the example of Lou Reed and, and vocals kind of not uh, lining up, and we're going to get to that in the end of the song, which I which I think is great. And of course, this uh this record was recorded analog; there was no Pro Tools or anything fixing anything here, so you can you can hear those push and pulls and those little rubs that uh, you just sometimes don't find it in today's music. I think it's great. So uh, yeah, immediately after pre-chorus one, which I'm calling a double pre-chorus because it happens uh, happens two times there, we go into verse two.
3: Hello, speaker. Is there somebody there? These hang-ups are getting me down In a world frozen over With exposure. Let's talk it over Let's go out and paint the town wasting-
0: Hello, speak up. Is there anybody there? These hang-ups are getting me down. In a world frozen over, with overexposure. Let's talk it over. Let's go out and paint the town. Uh, again,
2: the, the communication thing was a little bit, it was just different, you know? There was busy signals, and there was all these other kind of- Call waiting. Deep, <laughs> call waiting, yes. And, and just kind of, you know, not knowing what you were gonna get when you make a phone call. And I think that that can be construed as I'm waiting or whoever, else who is being called or i'm waiting on the other line for somebody on the other line to pick up there was a bit of a more of a mystery to what was going on when you got on the phone you certainly couldn't do things like this chris yeah (laughs) you know
0: well and i'll tell you what i i've always loved about this song is i liked the imagery and i never really knew what you were saying in the verses but I liked that they were kind of obscure, and then you get into the pre-chorus and the chorus, and, and those lyrics are pretty straightforward, you know, and w- you can read kind of into whatever you want with that, and I, I liked the, the di- dichotomy of that with, within this song. Uh, verse two, the drums break down again to that uh, kick drum floor uh, and snare drum thing you get there, and then we go into pre-chorus two.
3: I'm waiting by the phone
0: Just one time you say, I'm waiting by the phone waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone. So it's half as long and, and uh, I, I wrote, <laughs> wrote here in my notes that it's a cool little fake out here. I love that it only happens that one and I remember thinking back in the day when that when I first heard the song that that was that was really, really good songwriting because it jumps right into chorus number one.
3: I want somebody to show I need somebody to show. I want somebody to shove me.
0: Because I want somebody to shove. I need somebody to shove. I want somebody to shove me.
2: Well, not to digress, but I thought the double entendre of these hangups are getting me down. It's you know, it's like hanging up a phone, but you also have hangups. I'm so clever sometimes, Chris. I gotta tell you. Uh, but, anyways, moving on to the uh, the course, I th- I think that the punk rock movement was it was very it was, there's this dichotomy between like a- absolute apathy and kind of go out and do it yourself and all this kind of youthful energy, for lack of a better expression, that sounded pretty corny, but. So, yeah, there was always this kind of, I don't care. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not, you know, screw the establishment. Can I say fuck?
0: You can uh, say it all day long.
2: On one hand, it's it, it's that thing where it's just, it's just like, fuck everything. And then on the other hand, it's like you you need a little push every now and then to, to keep you just believing in what you're doing so i i think if you throw a mosh pit into that you you kind of have this this sort of pushing and shoving of a situation that is ultimately uh positive so yeah there's a lot of pushing and shoving going on but hopefully uh it's going in the right direction i suppose
0: Well, again, no matter what you're really alluding to there, I mean, the way you sang this, you know, with the conviction you did, I mean, who can't get behind that lyric, especially in the angsty early 90s? I mean, I want somebody to shove. I mean, that's just kind of gets people fired up. In the chorus here, the bass, drums, and stereo guitars are all in, but there's no, like, high part like in the pre-chorus. There's nothing else. It's kind of just straightforward. There's no harmonies uh, in this song up to this point either. It's pretty... Pretty bare, but it just it, it, it just sounds real. That's the that's the term I'm going to use. After chorus one, we get into a I don't know what you'd call this part, Dave, an eight bar guitar solo, a bridge without vocals, or a musical interlude. But there is a guitar solo during this uh, this eight bar part. Uh, the bass sounds killer. Here during this part. The bass run is is just awesome. And uh the guitar uh solo that's happening here is reminiscent of the sound in the intro guitar lick. And then we get into verse three. The the simplicity of, of the pre-chorus and the chorus, and now you come back with, with verse three. This is probably my favorite uh, favorite verse in the song.
3: In the jack. All the difference in the world is just.
0: You're a dream for insomniacs prize in the cracker jacks. All the difference in the world is just a call away. First
2: of all, I'm a terrible, terrible insomniac. So that's just kind of biographical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've always had a problem with it. And to this day, I I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't go to sleep at night. So. And in, in essence, essence, you know, the dream is, is to pay payoff somehow.
0: Yeah, I think that's the lyric I love the most. You're, you're a dream for insomniacs. Well, insomniacs don't dream because they don't fall asleep.
2: Once again, Mister Clever over here. Uh, <laughs> I had not really thought about it for a while, but uh, cracker jacks were a big part of my touring life. <laughs> it seems a little childish, but you know, you're in a van constantly and you're touring constantly and once again to date myself cracker jacks came in a cardboard box which they no longer do and uh the prizes were way better than they are now they were a little piece like i had a collection of uh colored magnifying glasses there were these round little plastic magnifying glasses and they came in different colors and I started collecting them so it's kind of strange for me to think that you know this little plastic thing inside a box of Cracker Jacks was you know the highlight of my days
0: or something you know well I mean you know touring around in a van especially back in the 80s no no Cell phones, no social media, disconnected from the world. Any type of creature comfort that that we could find, you know, you you would do, you know. Yeah. So, um, i I think that's cool that that made it into the lyrics. What I love about this verse is the drums are playing a straight beat here. They don't go back to that kick, tom, and snare thing that they're doing in verse one and verse two. And uh, the guitars here, interestingly enough, they play a similar chugging part as verse one and verse two, even though the drums are going straight. I like how the guitars kind of kept in that world. That's really cool how that happened. We go into pre-chorus three.
3: I'm waiting by the phone, waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone.
0: is and I'm waiting by the phone waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone. Yes, I'm waiting by the phone. I'm waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone and it's back to the double pre-chorus here. Again, the arrangement of this song's really really cool. Uh, get get the double pre-chorus here on the last line. There's an overdub vocal on the line, I'm waiting for you to call me up and tell me I'm not alone, that doesn't line up what we were talking about earlier, like that Lou Reed thing. Uh, the f- And I'm hearing the first vocal harmonies in the song here, although they fluctuate between being harmonies and unison with the melody. They kind of go back and forth. Do you recall doing that part in the studio? Is that something, a suggestion that Michael Beinhardt had, or did you just get up in front of the mic and just start kind of riffing vocally?
2: If I had to guess, it was probably some combination of those things you just mentioned. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I probably did it a couple different ways and and they I don't know whose idea that was, but uh you know my guitar player Dan Murphy was there and he did a background vocal which it probably happened pretty organically I guess is what I'm getting. At.
0: Okay, so that that wasn't you uh, on the other vocal. That's Dan.
2: I honestly don't remember.
0: Okay. <laughs> it so- it sounded like you there, but again, what's going on, it's semi-loose, but it even gets looser. Because I
3: want somebody to shove. I need somebody to shove. I want somebody to shove.
0: Because I want somebody to shove, I need somebody to shove. I want somebody to shove me. Yes, I want somebody to shove, I need somebody to shove, I want somebody to shove me. And it's really interesting how this all comes together here because it continues with those unison vocals with sporadic harmonies, some of which are odd note choices. And I love uh, those notes, it adds to the tension here but yet it feels loose as the vocals aren't lined up super tight in the back half here. Again, was that something that just kind of happened in the studio? Do you remember doing different takes of that or did it just kind of come organically?
2: I think that's me just kind of messing around with different ideas. And uh, sometimes I just pile on harmonies because I was sort of experimenting. I'm, I'm guessing that that's what was going on there. I was just messing around with the gotta have something new going on here or something a little bit different and you uh, know, here comes the harmony and let me try this and let me try that and things a couple of things were you know different phrasing and timing and I, i'm sure that's probably what happened so it's probably just a combination of hits and misses and you know just
0: yeah what will well, work. Chorus 2 is the only double chorus in the song because there's only two uh, choruses, <laughs> chorus one and then the chorus two, but you get three pre-choruses, which again, I'll make the case for that. The pre-chorus in the song is, is as strong as the chorus in the song, and I, and I think that's just awesome, and, and I chalk it, up, chalk it up to great songwriting. Uh, right after chorus 2, there's an eight-bar outro with the main guitar riff. Uh, we don't resolve on the B chord that after that main riff comes in at the top, it goes to the B for the verses, but it ends nice and happy on that G major, and then then, then the song is over. Three minutes and 15 seconds goes by way faster than that. The song's just, just written so well, goes by very quickly. Dave, do you recall listening to the song back uh, on the faders or hearing the first mix back, and, and, and what did you think of it after bringing the song into uh, the record so late in the game?
2: Well, usually we say playback is a bitch, <laughs> but uh when something like that happens in the studio, it's pretty satisfying. so I do remember playing it once or twice and having Vinehorn gone. I you know that's going on the record and standing there and listening to it and feeling pretty good. I mean, it sounded great, just without the vocal, as far as I remember, we were just listening to the track. You know, it, it was kind of something that the record needed kind of unbeknownst to me, or, wait, beknownst to me, now that I'm thinking about it, there was one or two other songs that I think I pitched towards the very end of the record at that same time. They were more up-tempo kind of aggressive kinds of things. So, yeah, I I, I do, remember it being this burst of energy and then this exhale of hey that worked you know
0: yeah and do, do you recall being stoked that not only was it the first uh lead off uh, single of the album but it was the first track on the record were were you surprised by that that is that something that that you guys wanted or something that a m was was suggesting
2: now i'm trying to remember what the singles were on the M records and kind of how we were sort of learning what that meant
0: right well you you guys led off with this and then black gold was the second single and of course uh runaway train uh was the was the third track released in in june of 93 which which sent the record into the stratosphere but i guess what i was asking was was were you surprised that the the song you brought in so late to the game was was the first single had to be a pretty good feeling
2: i was and it was and uh it seems oddly fitting somehow that you would end start with what you ended with. Yeah. So, yeah, I think people were excited about the song, and I welcomed that. And we certainly had never seen anything where a a record label was, was going to stay devoted or dedicated to the band for three singles. That was kind of unheard of for us anyways. So if there was like a bigger strategy going on, we were... Not aware of it. We were still kind of feeling our way through what was going on. And uh, in retrospect, it seems obvious, oh, they built it up to runaway train. but i don't I don't think we really we certainly didn't have any unreal expectations. I think if anything, we were uh, as surprised as anyone that uh, people liked it. <laughs>
0: you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, you guys again—you'd been a band for 11 years when this thing hit. I don't think there was any <laughs> any plan going into this; like it was just the next record that you guys made. And and uh, I, I really believe that you, you you stuck it out long enough to where your you, your time finally arrived. Music was ready. You know that I don't think the 80s were ready for a band like Soul Asylum. It need, needed to percolate a little bit, and, and you guys finally hit. Uh, before we break, is there anything you like to leave the listeners with? What you got going on with with, with the band? Any tours coming up? what you got
2: most of the time in the summer we go out for maybe a two-month tour it's kind of a mixed bag so this summer we're doing weekends i was just trying to explain that to somebody i mean when you're out and you're doing five six shows in a week you you fall into a rhythm and the band really starts to steamroll and things become more effortless as you get used to the day to today of, of playing every night. You know, after the first week and a half, it's the parts all kind of seem to come together. And you don't always get that when you're playing weekends. You you gotta stay in the groove, um, so to speak. So we'll be and then I'm doing some uh some acoustic shows this summer with my my guitar player Ryan Smith. And um yeah, we're kind of playing all over the place. And, you know, we'll do a week and a half here and a week and a half there. And, you know, it's it's different. Uh, I can't say I prefer one thing over the other. But as I was trying to tell somebody the other day, sometimes you're on tour and it's a, you know, two-month affair. And you end up in these parking lots or you end up playing... A dead town on a tuesday night or playing on a wednesday night uh, someplace where you're wondering why you're there so there, there there's an advantage to playing on weekends obviously so i think uh that's uh that's what we'll be doing all summer and uh you know i'm looking forward to it i love going out and playing and i kind of i don't know I, I like a two-month tour also but it it's <laughs>
0: yep, I hear you. It's uh it's, I don't bounce back as fast as I did when I when I was twenty-two. But uh, Dave, I wanna I wanna thank you for sitting in with us today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank
2: you, Chris. I appreciate it too. It's
1: fun. There's lots more, Chris to makes a podcast after a few words from our sponsors. Hey everybody, if you like Chris to makes a podcast, I'm going to assume that you like music podcasts. And if you like music podcasts, check out One Hit Thunder. Each week, we dive into a one-hit wonder, and along the way, we gain some knowledge and have some laughs. Lou Vega, Crazy Town, Harvey Danger, The New Radicals, Aha! We're over 100 episodes in now, and to paraphrase the great Matthew Wilder, nothing's going to break our stride. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods
3: we near the end of the show Here's a band you might not
0: know Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a podcast All you have to do is email your best song via mp3only And bio to band you might not know at gmail.com This week's featured artist is Scapository from New York City Their most recent record is appropriately titled Up Yours You can find their music on all the streaming platforms Here's a snippet of their song, Are You Rude
3: Too? The Rap with Chris and Chris.
1: So Chris, as a kid who grew up in the 90s, it is so wild and strange when we do these conversations and a person's face pops up on the screen. I'm like, oh my God, that's that's Dave Perner from Soul Asylum. It's like this surreal thing. And I'm like talking to him and it's the people that I watched on MTV and stuff. So I, I thought that was pretty neat.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember being happy for these guys when they finally hit. Uh, as I said, I, I heard them sometime around Hang Time in '88. They were what you would call alternative in the '80s. They they didn't really have a spot on on commercial radio yet. It was they were ahead of their time, and they stuck it out. And then all of a sudden, right place, right time, their their sound came around and. Uh, they stuck it out long enough to finally uh, have, have the recognition they deserved.
1: That's the coolest way to do it, man. Have the world catch up to you, not try to catch up to the rest of the yeah. world. I really like that part of the story that they had put out, what do you say, five albums five, before the, signing to a and I think that's pretty awesome. Well, you know, Somewhere in that ballpark of a bunch of albums, basically, throughout the 80s. And uh, yeah, when it was their time. It was their time in a big way. You know, Runaway Train was obviously the really huge song, but this being the first single from that album, as soon as, you know, the publicist got in touch with us about this episode, my first thought was, man, I want to do Somebody to Shove. And we had our conversation like, oh, but Runaway Train was the bigger one. I'm like, ah, I love Somebody to Shove. I think this is my favorite solo time song, so I'm really glad that we did this one. Yeah, and I honestly, I don't know.
0: If the world would have heard Runaway Train if it wasn't for somebody to shove. You know, this song got picked up by MTV, and I think it was the right choice. I think if they would have led with the ballad, it might have uh, fell flat. They might have not. I think they had to go with this one. I think I think it was the right song. And I and I, and how many times have we heard? I even told Dave, how many times has someone went in and said, eh, it's just an idea I'm kicking around. It's the 11th hour. The, the, the album's done. The producer's sit there going, wait a second. What is that? Play that again. That's going on the record.
1: And it was a really good point about the pre-chorus being, to me, a chorus. That part is what sticks in my head. The waiting by the phone part is so catchy. But, Chris, you talked about this briefly in the episode. That lyric, you know, I want somebody to shove, I need somebody to shove, I want somebody to shove me, that concept, that lyric it kind of sums up the 90s in my head <laughs> yep. for some reason. It makes me it makes me think, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, it makes me think of moshing. It makes me think of a live punk rock show, or, you know, a rock show in the 90s, and just the sort of feeling or attitude of what we'd call Gen X, I guess, at that time, the, this sort of like, apathy, this apathetic attitude, but I want someone, I I interpret it as I want someone to shove me out of that. Now, that might be me putting my own meaning into it. It could be something a lot less meaningful than that. I don't. I don't really know. But it definitely is a, a strong lyric and song title.
0: Yeah, and I had mentioned to Dave that I think I use the term angsty. You know, the early '90s were just angst and apathy, as you said, and and uh, uh, one part anarchy you could throw in there, and just this rebellious nature. And and that lyric is perfect. You know, I had mentioned that uh, there's a simplicity to the pre-chorus, which again, to your point, the pre-chorus happens three times. It's almost the chorus, you know the actual chorus only happens twice, but there's a simplicity to that lyric uh, in the pre-chorus as well as the chorus that we just talked about. But the verses, there's a lot of imagery and a lot going on there and I I, I like the picture that he was painting there. It's really really interesting where he where he came uh,
1: came from uh, from a lyrical standpoint. I would have never pictured that, you know, I pictured when he was talking about like an old folks home, a bunch of people, the phone rings and they all they all go to it. And then it's just for one person or whatever. It's very sad. I, a, I, I would have never put that sad <laughs> yeah. meaning to it. And uh, yeah, I think the the verses are, I would have never known what those verses meant. Um, I thought it was really funny that he talked about, yeah, this song kind of dates me. I'm talking about, being by the phone and waiting for it to ring well now you carry your phone around but chris i'm like you i didn't think of that and i wouldn't have thought of it because i don't know i set my phone over there on the coffee table and i still, still wait i still wait by the phone right i still say but maybe maybe i'm dating myself i still say it <laughs> well i guess no i would say it too You you plug your phone in to charge it i i never looked at it as being like a dated lyric. No, not at all. I still thought it was interesting he pointed that out because hey, look at a lot of songs in the 90s, you're going to find dated, dated, dated even in the 2000s, 2010s. I mean, I I careful not to do that now. I don't want to write a song about like I was on uh, Instagram today. I see I hear people dropping the apps and ins- names of apps and stuff all all yeah. the time in songs. I'm like, ah, let's not do that. that will be, be obsolete, you know? Yeah,
0: that'll be that'll be dated real quick. And you know, we heard in the Huey Lewis episode, Chris, when when Huey was talking about Bob Clearmountain mixing in some stuff that Huey heard later, it was like, "What?" You know, Bob mixed the record. And same thing here. I had said to Dave, "Did you double track these vocals?" He's like, "I don't think so. I swear they're double tracked. I can hear it." Okay, and he said, "Well, maybe." And I bet that was Andy Wallace. He got a couple vocals. He's like, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna here here's the main vocal,
1: but I'm gonna ghost this other track he did here. It kind of adds a little uh, texture to it." I mean, that's why you get someone awesome like Andy Wallace to mix your album, right? Give him a bunch of stuff. Let him work his magic. Give him some options. I I know in my experience with Punchline in, in recent years where we track the stuff ourselves and then we hire a mixer and we give him the kitchen sink and be like, all right, you <laughs> get to work. Do your thing to this. And I, I think giving him options, someone like Andy Wallace can step in there with a couple different vocals. And Chris, you were asking him about like, Did you sing that? I I can imagine Andy Wallace was taking parts where they were unison and mixing in the parts where... It was harmonies and, and yeah. creating his own thing, which is kind of what Dave alluded to there.
0: Yeah, and good for Michael Beinhorn too. You know, he had a track, a good track record in the '80s. He had worked with Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were not a household name then. Uh, Herbie Hancock uh, certainly had success, but uh, I, I don't recall the record that Michael produced for for him. But uh, you know, he worked with Fab Five Freddy and then Violent Femmes, who weren't, you know, they were a huge underground success, but not a huge commercial uh, success. And then he did the Soul Asylum record. Next thing you know, he's doing. And super unknown by Soundgarden, and after yeah. that, he, he he went through the stratosphere, which is which is really uh,
1: neat to see. Yeah, that's awesome. And Chris, you you talked about this a minute, but those last minute songs are sometimes the best. That's like the fifth or sixth time we've heard that now. I know in this hundred and some episodes of this podcast. Hey, don't be afraid to break out that guitar. You might write Alkaline Trio Radio, or you might write uh, Soul Asylum. Uh, Somebody to shove. You never know, because when you're in the studio. You're in that state of mind. You're like, you're feeling creative. And Chris, you said this in the episode, but sometimes some of that, whatever pressure you were feeling about like getting this stuff done is now lifted off your shoulders. It's kind of like, okay, I've gotten all this stuff out of me and it, I don't know, does it leave room to create or something within your mind, within your heart (laughs) or something that... Or does it just the creativity be sp- sparked by the experience? Who knows? But um, I would suggest anyone who plays in a band and is in a studio, don't be afraid to pick up that guitar or that bass or, you know, whatever. or Just hum, hum a melody that last couple days in the studio. You don't know what's going to come out.
0: That's right. And, and also, don't be afraid. To join our supporting cast over at ChrisDemakes.com. Do not be afraid of that.
1: Yeah, go to (laughs) ChrisDemakes.com. You get extra episodes. I know we're always hitting you guys with this every week. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid to write a song uh, in the 11th hour. Don't be afraid to, in the 11th hour, join the ChrisDemakes, a podcast supporting cast at ChrisDemakes.com. You help support the podcast, and you get a bonus episode every week and uh, lots of other stuff. So, yeah. Good call, Chris. Yes.
0: Yes. Lots of other stuff. Because we, we we work this like a job because we love it. And if you haven't already, please give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. Wanna thank this week's guest, Dave Perner, and we'll see you next time. Bowie, Dylan, Marley.